So I just got through watching Mike Winger uh, give a talk. This is uh, it's an older talk. This is from uh, almost exactly uh, four years ago uh, to the date. Today is just a little before the, the 31st. It's the last day of August, actually. So literally like four years ago to the date in two days. <laughs> and as I was watching him, he's trying to present the unbiblical stuff the Catholic Church teaches, Mary, indulgence, Eucharist, priests, seven sacraments. And honestly, I only had one thought watching the entire thing. Amazing. Every word of what you just said was wrong. So in this video, I'm going to actually play his video and do a response. Now, his video is over an hour long, so uh, I don't think I even got the time to shoot the full thing right now. So we're going to probably do this in a couple of parts. We'll just see how far I get through it uh, and then go from there. What I'm going to do is I'm basically going to play his video for a minute and then pause and give a response because nearly everything this guy said four years ago was wrong. Now, why am I responding to a four-year-old video? Because it's out there. It's on the Internet. Somebody brought it to my attention. And they said, well, what do you guys think about this? And I said, you know. I can give you a response to nearly everything that he says because, as Luke just said, nearly everything he said was wrong. So let's just give him a start. Now, first off, let me just say, uh, I don't think that he's being intentionally malicious or intentionally misleading. Um, to be quite honest, I think it was uh, Fulton Sheen who once said, there's not but 10 people in the whole of the United States who hates the Catholic Church, but there are millions of people who hate what they falsely think that she teaches. And nearly everything that he presents here as a teaching of the church just simply isn't true. So I'm going to go through this uh, piece by piece and see if we can't figure out uh, you know, where he's going wrong and how we can help him at least better understand Catholicism. Because if you're going to make an attack on Catholicism, uh, you know, it makes sense to uh, make sure that you're, you're given the right attack. So uh, let's go ahead and see what he has to say. We've already pretty much, using history and scripture, blasted away the single pillar of Catholicism, which is their claim to authority. I have a whole video on that, by the way. Uh, I have multiple videos on that, and I am—I haven't actually seen this video where he blasts away the authority of the church, but I really have my doubts. And in fact, the, the authority that it's easier to blast away is this man-made doctrine of sola scriptura. We'll get into that some other time. Uh, I actually have a couple of videos on my channel about this already, but just to kind of give you, just to tip my cards a little bit, Sola Scriptura is the claim, it was the hallmark of the Reformation, it says all we need is the Bible, literally it means Bible alone. Different Protestants will interpret it slightly differently, uh, but basically it says the, the Bible is the sole rule of faith for the Christian's life, and there's two glaring problems with that. A, it fails its own test because it never makes that claim itself. You cannot find that phrase in the scriptures at all. And in fact, they implicitly imply the necessity of an authority. We see Jesus giving authority to his apostles, binding and loosing and everything else. And again, we can talk about that later. But answer me this question. How do you know the books that belong in the Bible? How do you know that Mark is inspired or Jude uh, or Revelation, right? Now, Revelation is a funny one because, of course, Jesus says, you know, write this. But, of course, anybody could do that. I mean, the prophet Muhammad says, the angel told me to write, so I write. Joseph Smith magically finds the uh, the plates out in the in the field and then the, magically translates them by looking in his hat or whatever it was with the, the umen and the thuman and, and whatnot, right? But... The early Christians didn't have a Bible, and this is this is a hallmark mistake that all Protestants make: is they view it as just me and my Bible, and they think that they can just sit down and read the Bible once and then interpret it well. And let me uh, let me give you one. Uh, I don't have it actually. I don't have my Bible next to me. I took it downstairs. Shoot, uh, I'm going to call this. This is my pretend Bible. It's nice and big and fat. You can see it, right? This is about as big as the Bible. Uh, this is actually John Paul uh, the Second's Theology of the Body book. Um, but just pretend this is the Holy Bible for a minute, okay? Because it's about the same size, right? It's just a, it's just a prop. Now, imagine I said a phrase. Hang on. 
and I'll save this frame. Alright, this should be right way up on the camera here. But consider this phrase. I never said you stole his money. Now, if I were to write this down on a piece of paper like I just did and give this to you, and I said, do you know what this means? You would say, probably, sure, yeah, I, I know what that means. You know, I, I get it. I get the gist of it, right? But the problem is, with this one sentence, there are so many different ways to interpret it. And you may not think that on the superficial level, but consider if I said, I never said you stole his money, right? That seems to imply that, it, well, it wasn't me. I never said that you stole his money. That means pff, I wouldn't do it ever, right? I never said you stole his money. Maybe I wrote it down, right? Uh, I never said you stole his money, right? Uh, maybe somebody else stole the money. I never said you stole his money. Maybe you accidentally picked it up. Maybe you were mistaken. Uh, maybe you misappropriated the funds, right? Uh, I never said you stole his money. Now, these other people over here is a totally different story. I never said you stole his money, but maybe his wife or his job or his career or <laughs> whatever else it happens to be. So it's clear that this one sentence all by itself is difficult to understand and to interpret. Now, which do you think is more likely to be misinterpreted? This one sentence or my Bible, which again, it's not really a Bible in this particular book because it's a prop. I could run downstairs and get it if you really want me to. I have like 12 of them, right? Uh, which one is more likely to be misunderstood, right? And that's important because the Bible is easy to take out of context. The Bible is easy to uh, twist words and phrases and make them sound like they mean something else. And so whenever we're reading the Bible, it's very, very important to be reading it in connection with all the Christians who have read and existed uh, throughout all time, and especially with the early church. And what I find is most pastors, uh, like Pastor, Pastor Mike here, probably never read more than a few of the early church fathers, if any. They've never read the history of the church. They don't know even where they got the Bible. And what you see is, if you actually study these things, it's pretty apparent that the Bible has never made the claim to be the sole rule of faith, and it couldn't. And even if it was, it would fail, because it's, you can't come to a single uh, discussion. You know what else I don't have right next to me? Shoot, I always have one of these, too. I have a, I have a constitution that fits in my pocket. Uh, hang on, I might have one. All right, well, I, I don't have one. So <laughs> I, have, I have like three or four downstairs. Um, I always read the Declaration of Independence to my kids on 4th of July, and that was a while ago, uh, but I don't think I ever brought it back upstairs. Uh, and they, I have a couple that float around the house. But anyway, the Constitution, I have a copy that fits in my back pocket, and honestly, most of that is notes. Uh, the Constitution part of that little book is like six pages, I think. Uh, I mean, front and back, so 12 pages or whatever. But it's not super big. And yet our forefathers understood that there would be such contention in this mortal realm to understand such a tiny document that they gave us a legislative body, uh, or rather a judicial body, uh, to help us to understand what we were reading. How much more so than a book that's this big, written in languages that you probably don't speak over 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, depending if we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. Right, so uh, about 2,000 years ago from the New Testament, uh, anywhere from 3,500 years to 2,000, well, to 
2200 years ago for the new for the uh, old testament assuming you accept the uh deuterocanonicals in the uh, in the old testament which we catholics obviously do and uh protestants obviously don't that's a topic for another day right but so that just shows you already you're going to be running the risk of horribly misreading scripture if you're reading it not in connection with how the church has read it throughout history and so one of the things i'm going to do uh as he's going through and making his arguments i'm going to show the scriptures uh that talk about uh this and then i'm going to show some snippets of, of writings from the early church fathers that also back up nearly every single thing uh that he is going to talk about so without further ado let's actually dive in now that we're already seven minutes into this and once you realize that the claim to authority is not biblical the claim to authority is not historical you realize that all the other doctrines that then they build on that claim don't have any claim over you. And it's very liberating. Many uh, former Catholics found it extremely liberating to be able to just open the Bible and just believe it and not add anything to it. It's extremely liberating to open the Bible and make it say whatever you want it to say. Well, tonight what we're going to do is deal with um, false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. Those things that came out of this belief um, I think we have some feedback. You hear that low? Ooh. Hear that? All right. Cool. Um, we're going to deal with some false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, things that come out of their, well, really out of their gospel. We've already explained how the gospel of Rome is a gospel of faith plus works. Well, once you add works to the gospel, it's natural to ask, which works? I mean, what we're actually going to see is that faith and works are utterly intertwined. And you can't have one without the other. If you're going to tell me I have to be saved by faith plus works, then you're going to have to then tell me what works are going to save me. So this is one I've gotten to a discussion with people a lot lately. And let me pull up a scriptural passage for you. Let me start with this passage right here. It's the most famous passage in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Right? Now, the first problem is this is actually not the best translation. Uh, the word believes is in the present tense. In fact, here you can see it uh, right here. And the word that we are interested in is pistewon. Right, and that's present tense. So really what this should say, present tense is something that's ongoing right now, right? So God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever is believing in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that already denotes persistence. Also, it sounds better if you read it in uh, mock Russian or mock Greek accent. Whoever is believing in him has eternal life. We see lots of places in scripture where we're told to abide or remain in the faith. Paul has this whole thing in Romans about being grafted on as Gentiles, but we can also be cut right back off uh, you know, if we uh, don't hold to the faith. Jesus says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, which would be an expression of faith, but only the one who does the will of my father. Uh, he separates the sheep and the goats. And uh, with the goats, he says, depart from me, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Uh, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, when, when did we see you, you know, hungry and thirsty, whatever you did, the least of these, you, you, that you did to me. We all know that parable, right? But he literally is connecting their salvation with more than their faith. And here's where you can really see this. So let's just scroll down a little bit further here. Um, and this is the, uh, hang on. I just switched for the, I'll be open. I just switched to the RSV. It's just a more literal translation. He who believes in the son has eternal life. Uh, and here, this is, we're going to see a contrast. So what's the opposite of believe? He who does not obey the son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God rests upon him. So what is the opposite of belief? The opposite of belief isn't unbelief. The opposite of belief is disobedience. It's ceasing to obey. Belief is an active verb, and it implies obedience, which is why James says faith without works is dead, right? So works are necessary. You're not earning your way to heaven with works, but works are absolutely necessary. And there's different kinds of works, as we'll talk about as he gets into sacramental uh, economy and, and everything else. But just understand this. This is something that when I when it occurred to me, it was just like a, a huge aha moment, right? The word believe is a pregnant word, and it means far more than most of our Protestant brothers and sisters understand. And the way to illustrate that is, is if I said this. So let's say I went to Chicago, and I wanted to get one of those famous Chicago hot dogs I hear about. And I go up to a vendor on the street. He's got the sign. He's got the pictures. It all looks great. And I said, hmm, I'll take a hot dog. And he says, okay, that'll be four bucks. Whatever the price of a hot dog is probably eight bucks in Chicago. Give him eight bucks. I sit there and I wait. And he pulls out the little paper thing. He pulls out a frozen hot dog and he sets it in there and goes, there you go. And I said, I would say, what is this? <laughs> what is this? This is not what I ordered. You ordered a hot dog. I gave you a hot dog. I'm like, I ordered a hot dog, but I wanted one of those, right? The word hot dog in my words, in my sentence was pregnant with meaning, right? It entailed the bun, <laughs> the pretzel bun. It entailed the dog being cooked, uh, ideally to perfection, right? It included the, the mustard and the ketchup and the pickles and the relish and the uh, kraut and whatever it is you put on a, on a Chicago dog, right? Uh, all of that stuff. So when I said, give me a hot dog, what I meant was a lot more than just give me a hot dog, right? Because he, he fulfilled the letter of the law, in a sense. He fulfilled the letter of what I asked him to do, but he missed the meaning. And Protestants miss this all the time when they think that uh, faith in Jesus is a one-time event. And all you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus, say the sinner's prayer. And all of a sudden, you're magically imputed righteousness uh, for the rest of your life. And... Uh, what they say is at that point, you can never lose your salvation. And I'm pretty sure that's where Pastor Mike is going with a lot of this stuff, right? You can never lose your salvation. Um, and the reason they say that is they want to they want to make sure that that we understand that our salvation doesn't come as a as a merit based. It's not our works that earn us salvation, and so it's it's not our works that lose us salvation. That's what they're trying to say. Uh, but the problem is they're making us they they have this Protestant mentality that we are just dung and Jesus just you know covers us like snow, right? This is this is the Luther uh, hiding under the surface, um, but. In Catholic theology, we understand Jesus is doing something deeper. He doesn't want dung. God created the world. He created it good. And he wants us to be good. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He is bringing us along a pathway of perfection. And it starts the moment we have faith, but it doesn't end there. Protestants, they confuse the beginning of the race with the perseverance through the race and the conclusion of the race. Faith is the beginning and it's important. And they focus so much on that. And I think they do it in part because it's easy to get someone to kneel down and say the sinner's prayer. It's a lot harder to help them to lead a lifetime of conversion, but that's utterly necessary. We can find other verses. Uh, Second Peter 2.20 is my favorite for this because he's absolutely clear that you can lose your salvation. Uh, anyway, let's go ahead and jump back over. Oh, actually, no. Um, I'm going to show you one other thing here. Uh, well, I guess this was it. This is just the Greek word. Uh, pisteon. I guess I showed you that already. Uh, and then you know, down here in, in John uh, 36, we see the word um, for, so uh, you need to abide in God, right? Um he that believeth not. This is a different word. Apeteo. Apeteo. And if we see what this looks like, one of the places you can see this is in Romans 
2, I think it's verse 8. Yeah, here we go. But unto them that are contentious, King James, whatever, uh, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And it continues on. Tribulation, anger, and everything else is coming for them, right? But here's that word. Ah, pay, teo. Ah, pay, teo. Right? And uh, down here we have it again. Pay, teo, without the, without the alpha, which is the, the negation of it, right? So literally he's talking about obedience. Obedience is the opposite, or disobedience is the opposite of faith. So if we have faith that already entails obedience, and you know what obedience is? It's a verb. Well, obey is a verb, right? To have obedience is the verb. And that's more than just faith. In fact, having faith, believing, all of those are verbs. And what is a verb? It's a work. Let's go back to uh, Pastor Mike. And that's what Rome has done. In fact, it's given quite a few. You may have heard of the seven sacraments. We're going to deal with that tonight and talk about those and understand them better. A sacrament is a kind of a fancy word. In Catholicism, the word sacrament is a means of grace. Or if I can put it more in my own language. It yeah, that's pretty good so far. It's a way that you can earn grace. No. <laughs> you do the sacrament and then you earn pieces of grace or little bits of grace. In Catholicism, grace is given out piecemeal. No, in Catholicism, grace is a continual process that fills the soul. Uh, one of the best ways to understand Catholic sacramental theology is to imagine, um, imagine at the moment of creation, God, who is omnibenevolent, all good, um, all merciful, creates the world, and he pronounces it good. And he creates humanity. Why? Is he lacking something? Does he need something? Do we give him something he doesn't have? No. Why create? Because God is love, as we're told in John's epistle. And what does love do but give freely of itself, expecting nothing in return? God creates us to be filled with his love as full as we can be. So he creates us like vessels of grace. It's a very Pauline sort of a method or uh, imagery, right? As opposed to the vessels of wrath, right? He creates us to be vessels of grace. Think of, uh, let's keep it sacramental. Think of the chalice that a priest uses, this beautiful gold ornate chalice. This is what we're designed to be. And God's grace would be like the liquid, the wine uh, that the, the chalice is, is full of, right? And with what original sin does is it takes that chalice and destroys it. It melts it down into a ball, right? And now if you put grace on that ball, what happens? Very little, right? You pour grace into a cup, it fills to the brim. You pour it on the ball and almost all of it pours off the side. Now you can still move the ball, right? Because God's grace can still move us, can still prompt us, can still get us in the right position. Uh, but ultimately what winds up happening, I'll give you the image now and then as we go through it, you'll kind of see some of the mistake here. Um, we approach the sacraments and the sacraments uh, God gives us as conduits of grace in the material world because the material world is a good thing. Um, it starts with baptism. So baptism is like if, if in our fallen state we're that, that ball of metal, you know, and we're destined to again become a vessel of grace. What, sac what, what the sacraments do, what baptism does is it makes an indelible mark. That's the wording that the church uses. So it's like striking that ball with a hammer and making a divot. And now all of a sudden, it's not super useful. It's not super practical and super functional. But you could start to collect grace inside the, the divot or the groove that you've made. And then over time, as you receive grace, it starts to hollow it out more and wear it away more. And then we receive further sacraments like confirmation, which, you know, changes the shape and makes it more of a cup, uh, adds fluting for deeper reception of that grace, imparts the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? You have the Eucharist, which is the perpetual adding on uh, of grace. And so that is the, the sacramental life uh, of a Christian. Uh, it was in the first century. It was in the third century. It was in the 10th century it was in the 16th century and it still is 
today. You can find those teachings pretty much going all the way back. And again, I'll show you those as we as we get into some of this with the series. Now that we're already 20 minutes into it, and I'm probably going to get through the first two minutes of his of his talk. That's okay. This gives me something to do while I work. <laughs> so, and then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about confessions. Let me give you that one as well. So if you're meant to be a vessel of grace, right, and, and baptism has, has made a welling in you that, that can hold grace, and it's getting deeper and deeper, well, you can still tip it, right? So when we sin, there's two kinds of sin. This is explicit in scripture. This is in, in John's epistle, 1 John 5. And um, he speaks about not all sin is deadly, but there is sin that is deadly. And so some sins are like tipping the cup and you lose some of the grace. It spills down the side and it's wasted, right? Um, and the more you tip it, <laughs> the, the longer you tip it, the less you can hold. So enough venial sins weigh us down supremely. Um, but you can also just turn the cup upside down and that's a mortal sin, right? And, and what a mortal sin is, is us freely choosing to turn ourselves away from God. So if God is the source of the grace that's falling down from on high in our, in our slightly imperfect uh, analogy, right? And we're that cup, we can turn away from God in an instant uh, through a choice, a choice of sublime selfishness. I don't really know what word I want to use there, right? Supreme selfishness, maybe is a better way to say that, right? Uh, but that's what a mortal sin is. Um, you know, on the, on the, on the Protestant understanding, the, the, the sola fide understanding, the faith alone understanding that most Protestants have, and I'm pretty sure that's where Pastor Mike is coming from, they treat Jesus like a Gnostic secret. In Gnosticism, it was all about the secret hidden knowledge. Um, it was also about, you know, rejecting the material world and everything else, which I think Protestants sometimes skirt the line on, but that's another story for another day. Um, but they would say, uh, you know, if you had the secret knowledge, then in the afterlife, you could get into heaven. Well, for Protestants, the secret knowledge is kneeling down and, and, and saying Jesus's name uh, in, in the sinner's prayer. And if you have that secret knowledge, you know the secret handshake to get into heaven. And if that's the case, once you've done that and you can never lose your salvation, that means the moment you've done, even if it was, if it was a totally legitimate, totally meant it moment, right? Uh, and then you spent the next 10 years of your life following Jesus and preaching. We've had a couple of stories in the news recently about, uh, you know, professional, you know, Christian singers and stuff kind of falling away from the faith. Well, what happens if he falls away from the faith and he then becomes a Satanist and he starts doing human sacrifice? Let's, let's make it extreme just for the sake of it, right? He starts killing children on an altar to the devil himself, right? And he starts leading people away from Christ and he starts teaching them to do these things and he commits murder and he commits adultery. Uh, he has, you know, rampant drunken orgies and everything else. Are you telling me that that man uh, who, who molests children, right, who does all of the worst things you could do because he knows the secret handshake is just fine, right? You make God into a Gnostic God and you treat Jesus like secret Gnostic knowledge. And that's heresy, right? That's heresy. Anyway, Let's go a little bit further into this, and then I'm going to probably end this video here 20 minutes in. Uh, this is going to make a nice series. I kind of figured it would uh, since I couldn't get this far. I'm going to get a minute and 39 into the video so far. Uh, we'll go just a little bit further. Little by little, as you, uh, as you go each time to Mass or each time you do penance, that kind of thing, you get a little bit more grace each time. Um, you may have heard of indulgences. Raise your hand if you've heard of indulgences. And I'll bet you at least some of you thought, indulgences, Mike, that ended years and years ago, like in the Reformation, like they quit. It's actually, that's not true. Catholicism has indulgences even today. Um, it does, and actually most people are really fascinated to learn that the church has a partial indulgence for reading scripture, like half an hour of scripture, partial indulgence. It, they've been used since the Reformation and on, and yeah, certain forms of indulgences were frowned upon after the Reformation because there was 
there was certain guys that were saying, ah, every time a coin in the coffer rings a soul from Purgatory Springs, and there was this kind of extremely silly version of indulgences. But that that's not quite what it's... Yeah, it was extremely silly. He got it. So I, I, I take it back. Not everything that he said was wrong. What's happening anymore. And Catholicism has, in America, in the United States of America, has downplayed indulgences. But you have to... No, that's not true. You just don't hear about it because you're not Catholic. Let's understand something. If you have a gospel of grace plus works, well, the plus works part, that's the indulgences part. In indulgences is essential. It's also the abiding part and the obedience part. To Catholicism. And it's, um, it's wrong to a believer in Christ to believe in such a thing. But it's necessary. Grace, again, is given out piecemeal. In fact, even the current Pope, Pope Francis, the new Pope, who the world is having a kind of a romance with at the moment, at least some parts of the world. Um, this guy recently did a tour where he said, hey, you'll get indulgences if you show up at, say, Rio de Janeiro or whatever location he was at. And then he did something no Pope has ever... Well, I mean, you can get indulgences for lots of things, walking through the door of a church at a certain time of day, saying a certain prayer, fasting a certain way, at one point giving alms, um, but the church has said, we're not doing that right now. They could change it, because um, there's nothing wrong with giving alms. In fact, Jesus says to do things, pray, fast, and give alms. Uh, he says, you know, don't be like the hypocrites, but he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. When you give alms, don't be like the hypocrites. And so we can actually attach to those a deeper level of prayer, and that's all that really indulgences do. But let's continue. Never done before. He extended that offer of indulgences to those who would follow on Twitter. Not kidding. I mean, it's kind of funny. It does sound kind of funny. I, I, I concede. It sounds funny, but I think it's legit. And he'll, he'll actually make the point here in a second that as long as they're you know doing it for real, they're not just going like click follow, unfollow, follow, unfollow, follow, unfollow. Like, yeah, I'm racking up the, <laughs> racking up the, uh, the indulgences here. Now, not not frivolously, they have to like heartfelt follow on Twitter. They have to really devotedly be involved and that sort of thing. And so his Twitter accounts, you know, in multiple languages, were getting more and more followers because people are like, "Whoa! Any chance to get indulgences you want because indulgences will cut down, cut down your time in purgatory." And that's uh, yeah. Well, so, see, there you go. As soon as you add works to the gospel, it starts to get weird. No, it really doesn't. Also, it doesn't cut time off of purgatory necessarily because purgatory doesn't even necessarily have time. It's uh, kind of atemporal, uh, just for the record. It starts to get really strange and really confusing. So let's talk about these seven sacraments. The seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, seven means of grace, or seven ways in which you can get more grace into your life because you don't have enough. Conduits of grace given to us by Jesus to his church to help it carry out the ministry of reconciliation. Let's go ahead and stop there four minutes in uh, to a one hour long talk. Um, we're going to kind of break down as we go along. I mean, this is a very, very long talk, but he jumps through a lot of different topics. So we might have a chunk where we do like seven minutes here and then 10 minutes here and then five minutes there. And we'll just kind of let him talk for a little bit and go into it. But I'm going to go ahead and end this video here four minutes in. It's a nice, easy place for me to remember so I can pick it up next time. Let me know if you found this helpful so far. Uh, let me know if you like this series. This series. I'm going to go ahead and put a link to his video down below this if you want to go check out the whole thing. Um, he has a lot of stuff. I don't doubt he does some really great stuff too. Uh, I've not listened to everything on his channel. I've only listened to like one or two uh, of his videos. In fact, here's a couple of uh, Catholics down here, even from a day ago and a month ago, um, who are judging. So, you know, he's definitely getting some traction with this. He's got about 70, almost 80,000 subscribers. Uh, I've got about eight. So he's got me beat there. By the way, 
if you like what I'm doing, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification bell, um, because it gives me a little tiny dopamine boost and encourages me to keep shooting these videos. <laughs> that being said, uh, again, if you found this helpful, give me a like, give me a comment, give me a share, and uh, God bless you. Uh, keep the faith, and uh, I'll see you in part two.